Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Dr. Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult. Be sure to follow the link in the description after today's episode for more information about today's article and to claim CME credit. This podcast is brought to you by PrimeMed. Marie is a 45-year-old female with a history of risky alcohol use for many years. At her last checkup, she told you she drinks about two to three glasses of wine most nights of the week and has for a long time. This year, she tells you her drinking has escalated, especially over the last six months. She's had trouble cutting down on her drinking and has missed a couple of days' work here and there due to hangovers. She wants to work on this and is asking for your help. How can we best help Marie today? Hi, this is Frank Domino, and joining me today is Jillian Joseph, Physician Assistant and Instructor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the UMass Chan Medical School and Adjunct Faculty in the Department of PA Studies at the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Science University, both here in Worcester, Massachusetts. Good morning, Jillian. Good morning, Frank. How are you today? Doing all right. It's great to see you. You too. I must say the pandemic's done a lot of interesting things to people and, and increasing and escalating alcohol use seems to be one of them. Marie's alcohol pattern um, certainly feels common. How can we distinguish risky versus unhealthy alcohol use from alcohol use disorder? This is a really great question. And so it's important to define that risky alcohol use involves drinking any amount of alcohol that puts someone at risk for health consequences. So what are those health consequences? We think about alcohol-associated liver disease as one of the most significant of those consequences. But we have to remember that mood disorders, co-occurring substance use disorders, hypertension, neurologic symptoms, and even bone marrow suppression can occur from alcohol use. The National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism gives us some definitions of amounts to help us really quantify what this means. So for males under 65, more than 14 standard drinks per week on average, or more than four drinks on any given day qualifies as risky use. For females and males over 65, more than seven standard drinks per week on average or more than three drinks on any given day is risky. So what is a standard drink? That's something that's really important to clarify with our patients because what's a a one drink to them may not actually be one drink. So a standard drink is 14 grams of ethanol. So this is what's typically in a five ounce glass of wine, 12 ounces of beer, or one and a half ounces of 80 proof flicker. So then we have alcohol use disorder, which is defined by the DSM-5. And essentially, like any other substance use disorder, you could break it down to be continued use despite harm. But there are 11 criteria for this problematic pattern. And the important thing is that it leads to clinically significant impairment or distress. And so in order to qualify for an alcohol use disorder diagnosis, a patient has to have two of these 11 criteria that occur within a 12-month period. Some of the criteria are what you might expect, like patients might experience cravings, have a desire to cut down but be unsuccessful in doing so, or they have social or interpersonal relationships that are affected or made worse by using alcohol. Well, uh, Marie is telling us that she's asking for help and she's having trouble cut down. 
and that it's interfering with her work and, and probably in many other ways. So she likely meets criteria for alcohol use disorder. What's the best way we can help her? So first, I think it's so important to acknowledge and congratulate her on taking the first step to reducing her use. The stigma is still there, really, for any substance use disorder. And although it's a little bit better than it was, it still makes it such a challenge for patients to come forward and ask for help. So after doing that, I like to ask patients about how they got to this point, like what's their motivation for making these changes? And that helps to figure out really where to go next with their treatment options. And with so much information out on the internet, it's really helpful to also figure out what the patient already knows about their options. You could spend, you know, five or 10 minutes discussing things, but maybe the patient already has an idea of what they want. And so it's important to figure that out before diving in. And as you're thinking about a plan, you have to be sure that your goals as the provider align with the patient's goals. So asking, what are they hoping to accomplish? Do they want to completely stop drinking? Do they want to just cut back or control their drinking? What are they going for? Then after you've had that discussion, you want to assess the risk for withdrawal symptoms. And so figuring out if patients have ever had symptoms of withdrawal before, like tremors, agitation or anxiety, palpitations, headache. In doing that, you can help to figure out whether your patient might be a candidate for outpatient versus inpatient withdrawal if they're going to have any symptoms. So most people who have ever drunk too much will know the symptoms of a hangover, but some patients will have progression of those mild withdrawal symptoms. So patients who have ever had seizures, hallucinations, or experienced delirium tremens, if they have a withdrawal assessment score or CWAS score of more than 15, if they're medically complex or pregnant, they should definitely be referred to inpatient treatment. Patients who have mild withdrawal symptoms can be treated as outpatient, but that's a topic for another discussion. So let's say Marie doesn't have any of these criteria. She's looking for help in reducing her drinking rather than complete abstinence. So there are options to help her decrease her use depending on the severity of her disorder. And severity correlates with how many symptoms off the DSM-5 list they have. So if the patient has four to six symptoms, they have moderate alcohol use disorder, six or more meets criteria for severe disorder. So for those patients who have moderate to severe disorder, recommendations is for both psychosocial and medical treatment. We won't talk about psychosocial treatment here really because the options are many and really are dependent on individual patient factors. So if we talk about medications, as long as the patient is not also taking opioids, naltrexone is a great first-line option. It comes in both oral and IM formulations, so patient can have the option to choose what might work best for them in their life. It's also been shown to be helpful for patients uh, looking to reduce their drinking. Acamprosate is also effective, but it's important to remember patients need to achieve abstinence before starting that medication, and the dosing is three times a day, which can be a little bit of a barrier for adherence for some people. It's interesting what you say about a camprosate because um, I, I've tried using it when patients haven't fully become abstinent and it is not effective. It's very interesting about the medications that are used to treat alcohol use disorder. It seems like uh, there's there's not as much education in my experience about how to use them and with really quite limited access to uh, mental health care, especially sort of during the pandemic, um, 
the that need to know is 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 high yet our our information on it is is low um what are the risks and benefits of medications to treat alcohol use disorder yeah the whole point of treating the use disorder is to improve their health right in lots of different ways we can talk about psychological health or mental health physical health or both When we think about physical health, the consequences are significant for a lot of patients in terms of their alcohol use disorder. And so the more we can do to reduce these consequences, the better we'll be. There's a recent study in JAMA that showed patients who received medical treatment for their alcohol use disorder had a significantly lower risk of developing alcohol-associated liver disease. Patients who already had a diagnosis of cirrhosis and received medical therapy also had a lower incidence of hepatic decompensation. So this is really great news. The study was a retrospective cohort study, and they included just under 10,000 patients with alcohol use disorder. Their mean follow-up time from the diagnosis was nine and a quarter years. They defined medical addiction therapy as the use of medications, so disulfiram, acamprosate, naltrexone, gabapentin, topiramate, or baclofen were all included in the list, and patients were considered treated if they initiated therapy prior to the outcome of alcohol-associated liver disease or hepatic decompensation. So which medications were most helpful? Naltrexone, gabapentin, topiramate, and baclofen all showed a decreased incidence in alcohol-associated liver disease, and naltrexone and gabapentin were both associated with lower incidence of decompensation in patients already having cirrhosis, even if treatment was initiated only after the diagnosis. So this is really great news and more evidence that helps us kind of lean into using medications for alcohol use disorder a little bit more. I agree completely, Jillian. A, a naltrexone is incredibly safe and easy to prescribe. Um, I think most of our listeners have some experience with using gabapentin. It's very, very safe. Topiramate I use all the time to help people with weight. And it, you know, outside of some of its peripheral neuropathic symptoms, it's very easy to use and, again, very safe. Baclofen we all have to be a bit careful with because I think there may Uh, be some crossover dependence, but again, another easy to use drug. Thank you for talking about alcohol use disorder. It's extremely timely considering the last few years of the pandemic. Um, I encourage our listeners to, to give these meds a try. We'll have a link on the landing page to the articles discussed today, as well as a link to a CWA scale, so that if you want to learn about how to help people um, wean off of alcohol and not not develop seizures. Uh, we, we can at least offer some some guidance there. Jillian, thanks so much. Great, thank you. Practice pointer: In patients with alcohol use disorder, consider offering medication therapy to help reduce the incidence of alcohol-associated liver disease or hepatic decompensation in those with already diagnosed cirrhosis. Join us next time when we talk about inappropriate antibiotic prescribing in children and how to change your practice to be more consistent with the evidence-based guidelines. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim CME credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, follow the link in the description. To stay up to date on the most recent clinical research and news, please subscribe to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine and be sure to check out primed.com for additional CME content.